Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. We're coming to you on Wednesday morning, Australian time, and we've just had the news through that Kamala Harris will be Biden's VP pick in a triumph for Indian Americans. Oh, sorry. Uh, African Americans and Indian Americans and minorities of basically any description. Is it an inspired pick or a triumph of identity politics? We'll also be talking on this show, does asking the big question, does Dan Teen, the Federal Education Minister, listen to looking forward? We don't know, but what we do know is that he has responded to our request that he revisit the French reforms, and he's now appointed Sally Walker to have a look at what's happening with the French reforms and defending free speech on universities, campuses around Australia. We'll also be having another look at cancel culture in the case of J.K.L. Rowling, who's offended seemingly her former fans because of her stance on transgender rights and where that's taking society. Uh, We'll also, as always, have our books and culture pick. Uh, Today we have uh, The Umbrella Academy, the Netflix show. Uh, We have a crazy but brilliant movie called The Lighthouse with Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson and an older Australian film called uh, Lake Mungo, which uh, is, uh, involves, starts with a dead body, so it meets all the requirements of a, good, of a good movie. Please do remember that Looking Forward is a podcast brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already one of our 6,000 members, please do go to our website at ipa.org.au and see how you can get around our materials and get on the drip of all the wonderful research, commentary and other information that you'll find there. It is time now to introduce, first of all, my co-host from RMIT University, Dr. Chris Berg. G'day, Scott. Great to have you, Chris. And welcoming back, uh, this time on Zoom, unfortunately not in the studio, but our National Manager of Generation Liberty, Renee Gorman. Hi, Scott. Thank you for having me on. Uh, Great to have you. And uh, what a fabulous set you've created there, Renee. Much better than most of the Zoom platforms I've seen in this, this lockdown carnage. Yes, well, this was built for the Generation Liberty um, show right now called Viral Banter, and also just as a little um, sanity exercise for myself to create a space within my small apartment that felt very Gen Lib and felt like an office. So it's your safe space, and uh, nice, nice, uh, nicely done with the plug there, the uh, cross promotion. Um, You'll have a great future in commercial television one day, uh, <laughs> Renee, just getting that in there. But no, don't miss Viral Banter. If you go to ipa.org.au, you'll see um, a heading there for podcasts and uh, and just drop down there. Uh, once you've listened to Looking Forward, you can also listen to Viral Banter. And we'll be talking to Renee a little bit later in the show, not just about cancel culture, but about her work with Generation Liberty and our campus coordinators right around Australia. But first up, as I say, the news breaking out of America is that Joe Biden, having decided that it uh, it had to be a woman and she had to be African-American, has now chosen from actually what was a a reasonably extensive field, Chris. That's right. So so Kamala Harris um, will be the vice presidential candidate at the election. Um, Harris, as listeners probably know, was one of the early front runners for the Democratic presidential nomination herself. She is currently a senator for California. She was previously the Attorney General of California and she was a district attorney in um, San Francisco. Biden had committed in March to choosing a woman 
um, and had suggested that it would be a woman of colour. Um, Kamala Harris, as you've pointed out, has both African-American and Indian heritage. Um, I think this is interesting. There's a couple of things to talk about here, and I'd be interested in what um, Renee's take is. First of all, there is the um, assumption that there has to be a specific identity for the vice presidential candidate. I don't think that's that surprising if we don't imagine that all vice presidential candidates and presidential candidates are chosen with a um, with the same level of care that, say, employment is chosen these days um, uh, around diversity. And I, I don't think that's surprising. And to, to my mind, that makes sense. Um, I, I am more concerned about what the vice presidential candidate or presidential candidate actually cares about in terms of policy. And I'm also interested in in the politics of which uh, of that as well. So, uh, Renee, why don't I um, throw to you immediately? Um, what, what, what's your what's your first reaction when you see that the vice presidential candidate will be Kamala Harris? Well, the nomination of the vice president candidate has always kind of been a virtue signaling uh activity. In the past, it was kind of virtuing to the party itself, um, generally making amends, um, trying to virtue, you know, to the party that you were going forth with someone that, you know, maybe from the other side um, to bring them together. Now it seems more to virtue to the public about your great identity politics, um, you know, what you think will appear good to them. I do think it's it's interesting that she is still being called um, uh, part, you know, Indian and part African-American. I don't know where this, you know, the definitions in America are so hard to come across, but her father was Jamaican. Uh, I don't know whether that falls under the African-American banner, but, you know, they're going to take what they can get. But I also find it really ironic right now that they have chosen someone who during the presidential um uh, campaign or when she was trying to become president said that she would be a prosecutor president and that she was proud of her record as a prosecutor, someone who boasted that they were hard on crime. Um, when we're at the point right now when multiple members of the Democratic Party are saying that we should defund the police. So there seems to be a big inconsistency there. However, I think that her identity politics points may smooth over those inconsistencies in policy. But identity politics is basically politics, especially when we're talking about a vice presidential candidate, right? So a vice presidential candidate formally has almost no constitutional powers. Um, there, there's certainly no inherent policy responsibility that a vice president has and vice presidential candidates historically have been chosen well you know if we've got a a a northern presidential candidate then we need a southern or a, a, a west coast um vice presidential candidate that is identity politics right that is the same thing it always it it, it reminds me of something that i've always found remarkable in australian politics um when we're told particularly under the Abbott government, we were told that um, when people observed that there are very few women in Tony Abbott's cabinet, the response from the coalition government was at that time, well, we choose our candidates on merit. Now, absolutely, they do not choose their candidates on merit. They choose them to be representatives of this state and this faction and representatives of this group. It's not at all surprising that, particularly in the current environment we're in, that you would choose a representative of another subgroup of a national society. Is that, uh, uh, aren't I right there? 
I, I think uh, going back to, you know, the Liberal Party saying that they picked their candidates in merit, I think you have an argument there, but I don't think any of the male candidates are picked on merit. However, there is an argument that those candidates were picked through exactly the same process that the male candidates were. So there weren't, there weren't, you know, quotas or any kind of boosting to the female candidates, which I and many other females who, and especially some of my young female campus coordinators, are vehemently against. We don't want your pity points. We don't want you putting us up on a pedestal and saying you get this because you are female. However, I do find it, um, you know, a little bit disturbing that the main thing they want to talk about about Kamala Harris is not her, you know, not her policies, not her great record or as an attorney general, but however just it seems about her background, just about, you know, what her race is and what her gender is. And it doesn't seem like a pick that was made from a genuine point of she's the best person from the job. Yeah, well, one of the things, though, we've been talking about on this uh, program, the uh uh, the the Lincoln Project, which is the uh, the renegade Republicans who've been uh, like Rick Wilson, who've been talking about what the Democrats should do to defeat Trump, and uh, and they've come out already and, and endorsed her as a brilliant pick, even though back in March uh, they were tweeting that um, uh, she was a bit of a dud. So go figure. Um, but the point is, uh, the Trump campaign's already come out and tried to paint her as as radical left. Um, almost, you know, perhaps one of the one of the crew, and she did tack a little bit towards uh, Bernie Sanders in the primaries, um, but she's not any kind of rabid socialist. And this, uh, well, at least by Democrat terms, and um, uh, she's common or garden variety socialist, you might say. Um, so it's it's a reasonably safe bet from Biden, uh, I think, compared to some some of the others that he that he could have picked. Um, she's from California. She represents all that sort of democratic, Democrat Party den of iniquity that is California. But that aside, um, even her time as a prosecutor, as a state attorney general, is pr- probably going to play better to the middle of America than someone who was uh, from the campaigning deconstruct society side. And I think this matters, Chris, because uh, I disagree with what you just said about the vice president. I think that the office has completely changed particularly since Dick Cheney uh, took on that role uh, under George W. Bush. The, uh, the, you know, the, the, the accretion of executive authority into the vice president's hands has been a trend, uh, not so much under, under Trump, funnily enough, because he doesn't delegate to anybody. Uh, <laughs> but I think it is the longer-term the longer term trend. And when you've got you know, a senile seven, you know, a man who will be sworn, 78 when he's sworn in, uh, if he's sworn in, uh, next year, I I think the, you know th- this is a very different proposition. She's just not there to um, uh, to make up the other side of the poster. This she has to be a credible candidate, and a lot's riding on whether or not she can play to middle America, the the Republican, uh, the soft Republican women's vote, um, and also the you know the working class. Uh, men in the Midwest and so on that really are the keys to the Democrats clawing back the Electoral College. Uh, that's an interesting point because if you think about the um, the incredible accumulation of power in the U.S. executive, um, in the executive as opposed to the legislative or judicial side of government, um, it's not surprising that a lot more policy power gets sort of spilled out onto the vice presidential position um, and Donald Trump being a very um, uh, singular figure that he is, 
has hasn't delegated much to Pence, but almost any other president would delegate to their vice president. They got, because bit. they've got I, so I think, much I, power. I think yeah. your, your analysis of the politics is probably right. Um, the one thing that the Trump administration wants to hit the Democrats with is being soft on crime, being pro Antifa, um, uh, being pro the disturbances and riots. And this makes it really, really hard to credibly make that argument. Um, in fact, it makes it laughably hard. We've seen already a couple of statements from the Trump administration suggesting that this demonstrates how in hoc they are to the radical left, particularly on defund the police. Now, I, I haven't gone into any detail about Kamala Harris's economic policies, but she's not known for her economic policies. She's known as a actually remarkably aggressive prosecutor and a remarkably aggressive attorney general in a way that as a libertarian, I find really, really bad. So I think she's a shocking pick from a public policy perspective. She's a really um, a tough on crime. She, um, as a attorney general and as a um, prosecutor, she manipulated and used the three strikes rules. She was um, uh, very hard on drug, um, uh, drug crime, gun crime. Yeah, she was she against. She, she, she was against legalization of marijuana until she was for it. <laughs> yeah. She, so um, <laughs> until now, it happened, <laughs> she she seems in my my untutored reading of her career to to jump between wild extremes but i think the one consistent thing that um she is right now is a tough on crime democrat which makes it very hard for donald trump to run the campaign that he i mean i, th I think he would like to run about the um the the current disturbances in the united states i i disagree i think that he can still run on that campaign as long as the riots are continuing within Democrat cities. Uh, I don't think that Tulsi Gabbard's past trumps, to use that term, um, what's going on in America now and what is mainly going on in, in Democrat-run cities and that there are still members of the Democratic Party that are saying that the violence that's occurring is a myth. Jerry Nadler was caught on film and it's a real muck-up from the um, Democratic Party saying that the violence in Portland was a myth when Every person can go onto YouTube and find footage of violence. So I don't think um, that just because she has a tough on crime record that it's going to dismiss everything that's going on right now, everything that people are experiencing right now. Mothers are going to be, especially that soft Republican female vote, are going to be so concerned about what seems to be a complete lack of law and order, especially in Democrat cities, that they're going to lean, I think, harder towards Trump than ever. And, yeah, I just, I totally disagree. I, look, I, I doubt that's the case, right? So so let me put the counter-argument to you. Um, the president, the uh, who is everyone is paying attention to because Donald Trump wants everyone to pay attention to, is being associated with this lawlessness in a lot of cities and saying that they are Democrat-run cities does not, resonate because everybody's paying attention to the president who is talking constantly about the riots. Now, um, it's, it's quite obvious that the, the Trump administration would like to sheep this away to Democrats. And in many cases, that's a legitimate thing for him to do, because as you say, you know, the um, law enforcement in these in most of these cases is actually run by um, de Democratic elected officials. 
But to sheet that away to Joe Biden is really, really hard. And to sheet that away to Kamala Harris is really, really hard. It's not about politics is not about who deservedly gets the blame because the deserved blame in many cases is democratic mayors and democratic prosecutors in local cities. But the presidential election is about, well, it's about the vibe of the thing, right? It's about, do you can you credibly put that onto Joe Biden and his VP pick? And I just don't think that right now you can. I'm not saying that that's a good or a bad thing. I just I, I just yeah. don't see it. Oh, no. No, but you, you can actually see what side the rioters are on now. The American people have eyes and the rioters are incredibly anti-Trump. They are incredibly pro-Democrat. And I think a lot of American people are just going to vote whoever the rioters don't want at this point because they've made life difficult for so many people. I, th I think the, the opportunity is there, and I think it's, it's slightly... Um, different. By the way, I think I think you accidentally said Tulsi Gabbard somewhere in there, who was actually her um, her name. Oh, I, I think that's just wishful thinking. Yeah, that's, that's right. Wish she, the Democratic she, candidate was. There's some great <laughs> some great graves go already going around of Tulsi Gabbard um, uh, really hopping into um, uh, Kamala Harris during the primaries. So I'm sure the Republicans will use those. So I think there is an opportunity, um, Renee, but it's slightly it's slightly different. I, I think it's just about. Um, do you want all American cities to look like Democrat-controlled cities? I don't know that so much about the rioters, but, um, you know, something like, you know, uh, she's, she's from, Harris is from, from Oakland, you know, in the Bay Area. Um, San Francisco is that, you know, the, the Bay Area is that classic sort of Democrat city where it's, uh, they've, they've had control for, for decades and decades and decades, you know, and somehow you get this social dysfunction, uh, Lots of homeless people. Seemingly nothing works, and uh, you know, like uh, not quite Detroit level of bankruptcy, but you know, we're seeing it again in Chicago. Um, uh, we've certainly seen issues in in uh, in Portland, and so that that'll be the pitch. I think it's not so much that she's on the side of the rioters and the looters, but it's like, why is this all happening in in cities, and why are police forces out of control in cities that are run by Democrats? Like it. Yeah, you know, if if Trump could make that stick, um, and I think that's partly what he was trying to do when he when he uh, put the federal troops uh, into the the West Coast um, uh, with with that sort of remit to go around snatching people off the streets, which was pretty damned awful. But I mean, that that was clearly what he was trying to highlight that they've lost control of those cities. Yeah, but I mean, th there's the question is. Or at least I see. It. I, 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 to be honest, I think the the coronavirus is going to be the thing that swings the election. But nonetheless, the um, if law and order becomes the key um, election issue, will voters view Donald Trump or Joe Biden as the chaos agent? Who is more likely to cause more chaos by being president? And at this stage, because the riots have happened under his watch, because he has done nothing to prevent them, with the exception of creating, you know, even more tense conditions where he's put in the federal um, law enforcement officers, who will be the chaos agent? Now, again, I'm not trying to say that either of these outcomes are good things. I just don't see how that message from the Republicans 
is going to resonate with the swing voters that one would mm. need to win yeah. the election. I have, a, di I have a, di a different question as well, which is, um, sorry, Renee, um, uh, I'd be interested in your views on this too, which is she is a strong character though and whatever happens in that debate, um, part of the recommendation of the Lincoln Project was um, have, don't, don't respond, don't rise to Trump's bait uh, if you're the presidential candidate for the Democrats, but you better make sure somebody does. And, <laughs> and uh, she actually fits the bill. Um, I'm, I'm predicting that what we'll see is her coming out uh, pretty strongly while, you know, while uh, Sleepy Joe's sitting in his basement uh, doing these Zoom calls and, and being everyone's um, funny old grandpa, she'll be the one going toe-to-toe -to -toe with Trump and, and Trump might actually get sucked into it. He might, um, they might actually start baiting him. So it will be, will be fascinating to watch, particularly a strong woman like Harris um, uh, presenting in that kind of way. Yeah, well, we did see um, Kamala Harris actually tear Biden to pieces a few times, um, but not that's pretty easy. Tearing apart Biden <laughs> compared to tearing apart Trump, I think, are two different things. I think the analogy of, um, you know, uh, uh, debating with Trump is like wrestling with the pig. Everyone gets covered in mud and the pig enjoys it is so apt <laughs> when it comes to arguing with Trump. Nothing seems to stick to him. But going back to Chris's point, I think um, that people see these riots and people see this um, this problem in America as not something that came out of the blue, but as a continuous tantrum that began in 2016 um, when Trump won with that, you know, that famous meme of that woman screaming, ah, when he won. But this continuous, and I think Trump has been smart and he has used a lot of this footage of, you know, hysterical far-left um, protests. And if he can connect that to what's going on now, so this is just the other side being sore losers and this is them being sore losers again, then, and can, if he can connect it back to Scott's point, then I think he does have a very strong chance. That, that might be right. I am very skeptical um, because I just, to, to go back to the original um, point, is Biden politically better off having chosen Kamala Harris as opposed to anyone else? And I, and I think that he is because it keeps blunting that attack when it's very hard to say that um that it, this just proves how soft biden will be on crime when you choose a person who is notorious and and really despicable in some ways on prosecuting or uh, on on um prosecuting police misconduct on tough on crime policies that have led to extraordinarily illiberal outcomes. I think she is a shocking person from a public policy perspective, but if the Democrats were trying to blunt that attack on them, she's probably a pretty good choice. Well, I guess the good she's thing also a massive hypocrite. Have you seen the, you know, she incarcerated 1,500 people um, for marijuana infringements, and then when asked in a media interview if she had taken marijuana herself, she gave this kind of cheeky giggle. Um, <laughs> well, this is... It's just something well, she inherited from Obama, and it's one of the biggest examples of hypocrisy that always annoys me. It's one rule for me and another rule for V, and I think if... I, I doubt that the Republican campaign will be able to tap into that, 
but that could be something they could tap into to get the young vote because this kind of hypocrisy that I'm allowed to do these drugs and Obama did the same thing. He he laughed on talk shows about the drugs that he did whilst he was still um, backing incarcerations of others. Um, if they could tap into that hypocrisy, I think that would be a really great great way to to get to young voters. I think one of the one of the nice things about this conversation is that we have reached a point in this world where. Uh, her gender actually is probably the least interesting thing about her, her political positioning. Um, uh, it's it's it, the selection, the determination that it had to be a woman VP was very much about identity politics. But I think it's interesting that the the one they've selected, it's sort of the least interesting thing about her. They're certainly not saying uh, vote for her because she's a woman. I mean, Hillary tried that, um, and that was a disaster. Uh, the Democrats have never forgiven women across America for not voting for Hillary. It's almost uh, they implied that they, they were all somehow in abusive relationships with their re their Republican patriarchal husbands, and that's the only reason why they could possibly have voted Republican. But at least with with Harris, we're we're not we're not seeing, I think, this idea that she's going to appeal to women across America merely because she's a woman. Um, her her pitch is something else, I think, and. Um, but, you know, there's something in it for both sides. And I dare say, Chris, we shall be returning to this. We, we, we may touch on it again in between now and November. It's yep. hard to say, Scott. It may come up. <laughs> maybe, maybe. A little bit of election. We love a good election. <laughs> it, it frames everything. And, and certainly it's a very um, uh, consequential one. Uh, but meanwhile, closer to home, things have been happening. And um, I will uh, ask you to frame this a little bit. But um, I did. I was going back through the um, uh, through the shows, Chris, and when we talked about Peter Reid and that uh, terrible decision in the federal court, uh, which overturned the original verdict against James Cook University, we were talking, of course, about uh, free speech on campus, spirit of academic inquiry, all kinds of things, and uh, I did say at that time uh, that. Um, uh, industrial law was no way to defend free speech on campus. We needed something stronger and we've had the French review, but that it was going nowhere. And I said, quote, if I can quote myself, it is time for Dan Tian to revisit French and what universities have actually done with the outcomes of that review, because with one exception, they've done very little, that exception being Greg Craven's Australian Catholic University. So, Chris, what actually happened seven days after I said that on Looking Forward? Well, we'd like to, of course, give a shout out to the Education Minister for thank you for your um, dedicated listening. Thank you, Dan. Um, <laughs> Dan. Long, long, um, long time. Was so, the first time caller. <laughs> so the um, uh, Dantian has um, announced a review into how Australia's universities have implemented the free speech code that was recommended by uh, High Court former High Court Justice Chief Justice Robert French in his review on freedom of speech in campus. So um, to unpack that slightly and to give a little bit more context for people who are coming into the story now. Um, uh, last year, Robert French was asked to inquire, or the year before, he was asked to inquire into the state of freedom of speech on campus. So covering things like academic freedom, the freedom of academics to, um, uh, to speak and research in areas of their choosing, as well as um, the freedom of students to um, uh, speak on political topics, to invite speakers from across the political spectrum to campus, which of course Renee has been very deeply involved with. Robert French's review found, and you can listen to the episode where we discuss and argue about this some, some kind, Robert French 
found that there was no freedom of speech crisis on campus. Um, uh, he didn't actually look for one, nonetheless, but, um, but he found that there was no crisis. Nonetheless, Australia's universities should implement a draft for or a freedom of speech code that he'd very kindly drafted up that would purport to protect freedom of speech for academics and students. Uh, all of Australia's universities have committed to adopting that code by the end of the year, um, perhaps in response to um, Scott Hargraves' frustrations, <laughs> the review is now looking at whether they have implemented that free speech code and, and provide advice um, uh, about how to do so, identify evident gaps, and potentially um, recommend public policy changes that might ensure that this code is implemented. Um, Renee, um, having spent a lot of time on this issue and having a direct line to the students who are involved, is this heartwarming news that the federal government has a new focus and dedication to ensuring that speech on campus will be free or, or are you a little more sanguine? I think it's a good start. Um, I do think that I, I'm very happy that they are further investigating this. Um, as, as you pointed out, the French model code said that there was no freedom of speech crisis. Um, it's funny that they never actually consulted students on that, um, which, you know, the IPA did with their survey into um, their thoughts on freedom of speech, which found some worrying results. Uh, my main issue is that apart from looking at the administrations themselves. So this investigation is going to go to policies, administrations at the top level of universities. Um, however, if you don't go down to the student level and especially to the union level, you're not going to get to some of the real causes of censorship on campus. So for example, the deplatforming of speakers or the disallowing of groups generally doesn't actually happen from university administrations themselves, except in rare cases. It generally comes from student unions who are funded by a compulsory fee taken from all students. And I think the government really needs to either investigate these unions and make sure that they are upholding um, the principles of free speech and the model, French model code as well, or they have to get rid of SAF. They can't, they can't do both. Yeah, this was... talk, us, talk us through that. Actually. Sorry, sorry, Scott. Talk us through the, um, uh, the issue of SAF because I don't think we've discussed it in, in any depth on the podcast before and it'd be interesting for our listeners to hear about exactly how that works. Uh, if, if you could, sorry, I'm just going to interject um, uh, Ren, then, Renee, because it'll in, uh, give you an additional element to this. Uh, I completely agree about the student union. The thing about French was he did make the point that whatever measures they took had to override all of the other policies and procedures. You couldn't just have a free speech policy which just sat alongside all of these other policies and procedures. Um, uh, but that's exactly what these universities have been doing. So that's what, and and I think that goes for student unions as well, Renee. That it's all that because what they're doing is they're saying, oh well, yes, we do have policies on free speech, but this is to do with the student union. It's nothing to do with the university administration's policies. Therefore, we can wash our hands of it. Sorry, Renee, go go ahead. Yeah, it's it's a constant passing of the buck that we see, um, which affects students day to day. And I've always been really skeptical of you know that 
you know, all the all the universities took on this code happily. I would not say that they took this on happily. I'd say that they dragged their feet in accepting this code. And also the whole time they were saying that there was no free speech problem. And I'm very skeptical of anyone who can fix a problem when they say it doesn't exist. So, but when it comes down to SAF, SAF is a compulsory fee that was introduced by the Gillard government after, you know, the Howard government removed compulsory unionism. SAF is basically compulsory unionism in a disguise. It is a 300, over $300 fee that's taken from all students and is a good portion of that is given to the student unions who have large control over student events, student groups, market days, O-week activities, the kind of day-to-day out-of-classroom activities of students, which is actually where most students um, kind of express their political beliefs. It's where they find um, new, new groups and new ideas. And right now the unions are in ma- have mass control over that. And we've seen examples of um, groups being disallowed. So, for example, Chris Decker was not allowed at Market Day at QUT um, because Generation Liberty did not align with the values of the union. They Chris, still didn't Chris, Chris Decker being <laughs> the campus coordinator at that campus for Generation Liberty, yes? Yes, yes. So uh, our campus coordinator, Chris Decker. And then we also had a similar um, case where Luca Rossi, our campus coordinator at Monash, his stall was not allowed at Monash Open Day because of that Generation Liberty's views did not align with the union's values and because of our views on climate change, even though Generation Liberty does not have a particular stance on this. So these unions have a large amount of power and a large amount of power to silence students, silence silence student groups and to de-platform speech speakers. So they really, really do need to be investigated just as much as administrations if that SAF fee is going to stay in place. Yeah. What is the... What, what is the um the the appetite in the coalition so so the uh, i'm i'm of a generation that people were talking about voluntary student unionism under the howard government um and so that was in implemented by the howard government then de-implemented by the gillard government um uh what is the appetite within the coalition government for tackling um uh, voluntary student unionism again or is that just being pushed in the too hard basket I think it has been pushed in the too hard basket. There are a lot of um, members of the coalition who are still passionate about it. For example, uh, James pa- Senator James Patterson, I know that Senator Amanda Stoker and uh, Senator Claire Chandler are all particularly vicious about this topic. Um, and uh, note that all these um, senators are also very young, um, so would have faced some of this um this censorship from unions themselves, they're, they're tapped into what's actually happening on campus right now. Unlike a lot of the people who try to um, implement, you know, all these free speech codes, um, they I feel there's a, there's a big disconnect between what's actually happening to students and what they are investigating and what they're seeing. And I think there really needs to be a bridging of the gap between the administrative bodies at universities and the students, but also between um, the coalition, if they really want to fix this problem, they need to go down to the student level. But, but forgive my forgive my introductory questions, but why is this hard? So, I mean, the, the coalition government has done some extraordinary things over the years, sometimes successfully, sometimes unsuccessfully, in higher education. Um, why is a, a student charge 
that is widely viewed, or I assume it's widely viewed in the coalition as being negative, has this implication for freedom of speech, which they care about. Why is that tough? Uh, maybe because they've given up on young voters. Um, this is an issue that matters to young people. And, you know, maybe they feel like they can't really win us over. And it's not something that's worth the fight for some people who they think will not eventually vote for them. Yeah, yeah perennial, that, problem that with the, perennial problem with the, with the Senate. You can always blame the Senate for not trying to do anything. Um, certainly, Chris, the one thing I will admit, I know that uh, you're reluctant to put everything in the free speech on campus bucket. And sometimes uh, the cases are interesting. In this Australian story announcing uh, that Sally Walker would um, investigate on behalf of Dan Teen, they've raised the latest, uh, the latest issue, which was the... Um, a UNSW adjunct law lecturer who had the temerity to criticise the uh, Communist Party government in China for human rights violation in Hong Kong, and then the flurry of activity from the news uh, from the university afterwards, in which they made sure that the um, tweet was taken down. Uh, they sent out an, an apology. Uh, to the Chinese students on campus. I'm not sure there's any left, but um, they ran a hundred miles from it. But they, yeah, it was the act of actually trying to expunge that tweet from the record, which was uh, a truly remarkable. Well, it was, I think, um, to do. It certainly goes to the issues of free speech being under pressure on campuses in this case because of um, relationships with with China. And uh, to their credit, the UNSW has now uh, walked it back and said that they're sorry that they did that and they, um, they're sorry that they've um, uh, tried to stifle free speech in that instance. So it certainly raised the sensitivity level for universities, this debate. Unfortunately, the last time I looked at that, that was not an entirely unambiguous rollback as well. They may have said different things to the Mandarin in Mandarin to the Chinese students than they did uh. publicly. But I, I look, I, I, you're right, I am sceptical about putting too much in the free speech basket in um, universities, but this is absolutely one of the, the ones that we should be concerned about. Um, the universities have a absolute responsibility to, if nothing else, teach and research the truth, um, or at least try to um, work towards identifying the truth and teaching that truth to the students. Yes, and the a, idea a, a, a law lecture, reasons, a law lecturer we, talking about human rights would seem to fall is, into that. Yeah, uh, into that. This basket. is not an ambiguous situation that's happening in Hong Kong or in China. More generally, it's not a matter of you know he said, she said. It is unambiguously a um, human rights, anti-democratic. Um, uh, it, it is an extraordinary situation that we cannot be more condemnatous of and Condemnatory. I, I, I really worry about that. Yep. I, I actually, you don't really, I've seen the underbelly of this story as well because I have a student at UNSW who has allowed me access into some of the UNSW private Facebook groups where students discuss some, some of these issues. And these um, student pages are actually full of a lot of Chinese students who are calling for the you know firing of this teacher 
Um, also, I saw the letter, which kind of uh, I will allegedly led to this decision by UNSW, um, where the, the which was sent to the entire law faculty from this one student um, about you know how offensive this was. But I think what that student said in that email was borderline more offensive about what they said about the people of Hong Kong. I really hope that UNSW is looking into. Um, that student feeling that they could send that email out and say those say those things, um, and whether they bowed to that particular email, I think is particularly concerning. But we've seen these. This is just a particularly public case. I've seen examples in the past, and it seems to be something that um, lecturers and tutors are pointing more and more to, um, because a particular international group is becoming such a large majority, and now they are actually working together to lobby the university to pretty much cater the, to them um, despite it not helping, you know, the university overall, that catering to them is the most important thing um, because they provide the most money and that's becoming an issue across all universities, especially the top-tier universities. Yeah. Can, can I raise, raise a point there? So um, there's been a couple of claims made in, in higher education circles that this is a the, the French Review Review, which is what we're going to call it, um, the, the French Review Review is a politically quite clever thing for the education minister to use in the current environment because, um, as we discussed a few weeks ago, they are also currently in the middle of a grand renegotiation of the um, the fees that are paid and the balance paid by it, by students into HEX and the balance paid by the government um, of, of courses basically across the board. And there are some people who have made the um, argument that uh, this is a nice distraction. So anytime um, Dan Tien goes into a meeting with the vice chancellor, the vice chancellor might have some concerns about the um, financial situation and he can respond with, well, I've got some concerns about your freedom of speech campus things. Now, that, that may be excessively cynical, but it's an interesting argument. But what, what we're talking about now and how this conversation has evolved is that there is a really deep integration between the financial status of the university sector and some of these freedom of speech debates. Um, uh, that we have a sector in extraordinary crisis that for a very long time, or for for the last decade or so, I should say, has become dependent on international students. Andrew Norton, former um, uh, education um, ex higher education expert at the Grattan Institute now at ANU, has made a really clear point that universities, as governments reduced some of their research funding to universities, universities responded by trying to up the international student load which could therefore give them a surplus that they could redeploy towards research. So we're seeing this simultaneous um, financial change within the university sector um, matched to an, in, a, a complex freedom, not complex, but a challenging freedom of speech problem um, uh, around particularly um, uh, China that that has been yeah. in response to the calls for more money. I, I know that's confusing, but there's those two things going on. Well, well, uh, well as long as you're being, uh, as long as we, you presented like the, the the cynical view that might be talked about in, um, well, not in university staff rooms because they're all in lockdown, uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, at least in Victoria, um, but which is a bit of a nonsense. But you see that tension, though, Chris. By admitting that tension, you've already gone off script. Because what you're implying is that I don't the, have a script. I don't have a script. Yeah, no, well, you're certainly you, you're certainly going off off the um, uh, the script that you know Dan Teen's only using this cynically. I think it just proves the point that 
Um, not only are they uh, not backing free speech, um, but they're doing it for fiscal reasons. And what where where the my cynicism comes in is they're they're denying that any of this is happening. They're denying that they're uh, uh, crushing the values that universities are meant to have. They're denying that they're being hypocritical when they go after students and academics. Um, who go off the corporate message. They're just denying that there's an issue at all. And, and at one level, you can be sympathetic to any organisation which is seeing, you know, something worth, you know, 40% of its revenue um, uh, under threat and thinking about what they're going to do and, and their research partnerships and all of these things. But don't pretend that that has nothing to do with you doing grovelling apologies such as we saw at UNSW or what's happened at the University of Queensland uh, under the leadership there. I mean, because once if universities are just going to compromise their values, if they're going to sell their, their, um, uh, the values that they're meant to uphold as universities just to chase revenue, well, then we've really got bigger, bigger problems. And that's a debate we actually should be having. It, it is debate we should be having. But so I, I actually don't have a, I, I have very mixed views on this because on the one hand, I do want universities to be more market exposed. I want there to be a market in higher education. But if there's going to be a market in higher education, there tends to be a, um, there, there, there may well be a violation of, or an increasing violation of the sorts of things that we value universities for culturally. If you don't want there to be a market in higher education, then there's one thing that you could do, which is fund universities more. Now, I want there to be a market. I also want universities to uphold freedom of speech. So I want I want to have my cake and eat it too. But it seems like the sector and the government is going to have to face that tension more and more. Do you think that the problem is, though, Chris, that the international students and local students don't operate on the same market, so they don't have the same value? So I actually think one of the big issues and why the pouring of international students actually happened is when the Gillard government a uh, removed the opportunity in the past students from local students who were, say, two points below the entry for, say, a law degree, so they got a 94 and they needed a 96, they're, you know, they're um, parents could pay their way in um, to that degree. Um, you know, this was removed because it was seen as some kind of, you know, rich parents paying their, you know, their dumbest uh, um, child into this degree. Um, however, they were only generally very, you know, slightly below the mark. And I think the paying their way into the degree is much more happening at the international level now um, than it ever happened at the local student level. Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely right. Um, it, the domestic students are not treated as cash cows. Um, and if domestic students could be treated as cash cows, um, then it's quite possible that universities wouldn't be as reliant on those international students as they as they are. Or at least those international students and the domestic students would be on exactly the same footing. Now, um, the coalition government tried to deregulate uh, uh, student fees, but but failed to do so because of because of the Senate and because they just were unable to do so because that's the nature of this government. Um, the Senate, uh, the but, Senate is so, where so all... So there have been attempts to, to make that better. But I think that's the tension we're going to have to try to navigate now. I think it is this freedom of speech crisis and the financial crisis are two sides of the same coin. And sometimes we may have to make decisions about are we going to expose universities to markets 
or are we going to treat them like playthings of the federal government or not? And I'm sure we'll have more to say about that in the future Almost as well. So. <laughs> um, well. Well beyond November too. <laughs> yes. Now, Chris, cancel culture. Um, Renee has something to say, but can you give her the, the, the lead in, the intro, the, uh, the drum roll, please? Oh, gosh, because I was just going to throw to Renee. So the drum roll involves that Renee wrote a fantastic essay <laughs> on um, cancel culture and Harry Potter, of course, um, connected to many of the interesting discussions about identity politics and so forth. But why don't I throw to you, Renee, uh, I think we've got a lot to talk about this, but um, why don't I throw to you just to describe your argument in that essay and how you think it relates to some of the themes that we've been talking about on this podcast. And, and perhaps just remind us of, of, of the experience of J.K. Rowling, the, the author of the yeah. Harry Potter series, over the past few months and why you found it interesting. Um, so I was, I know, I think... This whole thing actually started a lot longer ago. J.K. Rowling has been under pressure to kind of give in to the woke PC culture for much longer than this recent scandal. It's been going on. They've been trying to catch her out for a while, if you actually have been um, looking into this for a long time. However, it has been her statements on um, trans issues and particularly um, women's rights in regards to being able to make statements about that and how it encroaches on women's um, rights in particular that has got her in the most hot water. However, the essay I wrote was actually more about that I thought that this whole rejection of Harry Potter and the, no and the novels that J.K. Rowling wrote, there's a deeper underlying issue here, and that is that the Harry Potter books are actually, um, they're pretty much moral lessons that the cancel culture brigade cannot um, accept anymore. They have to reject them. So the example that I bring up is that if there were statues of Dumbledore, they would be they would be tearing them down right now. And that may seem seem strange to someone who's not familiar with the books, because Dumbledore, Dumbledore being <laughs> Dumbledore is the headmaster of um, the of Hogwarts, and he comes across. But to clarify, he, Harry Potter is a young wizard. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, and. Uh, he comes across to very a lot of people as very um, symptomatic of kind of uh, Tolkien's Gandalf, so this kind of wise figure. However, it's revealed later in the books that when he was young, he was friends with Gellert Grindelwald, who's kind of the predecessor to Voldemort, so the, the most evil wizard ever. So um, Harry has to go through this issue of that his hero actually had this kind of dark past and a very dark past because his friendship with Grindelwald actually resulted in the death of Dumbledore's young sister. So this very dark, dark lesson. And the essay is kind of about these kind of Jungian concepts within Harry Potter, which are about accepting some of the mistakes that you make and some of the mistakes that others make and incorporating your shadow and incorporating some of the darkest parts of yourself in order to be able to move forward and actually in order to be an upstanding citizen. And I don't think that the people um, in cancel culture can accept those concepts anymore because they're pretty much demanding perfection from anyone that we idealise. You know, they're tearing down Winston Churchill, they're tearing down um, Jefferson, they're tearing down anyone that has, you know, one blip in their history. So I think this obsession with Harry Potter, I think the JK Rowling issue is very the, the, the kind of top level of it. And if you go down deeper, it's that 
these books are actually very Western sieved. I find it very ironic that, especially that the, the Christian Brigade came out so anti Harry Potter when you first when it first came out, because actually the underlying themes of Harry Potter are not necessarily Christian, almost older than Christianity, but very there's some very Christian morality weave, weaving in there. The second book is pretty much the story of St. George, um, but it's right now it's the, actually the left that's rejecting them just because they can't deal with the lessons that what of what Harry Potter was trying to teach us. Yeah, Renee, c- congratulations. This is why we call this podcast informally the old IPA podcast, though, <laughs> isn't it? Right, it's no, I, um, well, it's, this is where it all intersects. And, and congratulations, Renee, on, on the essay. I, I thought it was great. And I know that it, it fits with what you've been talking about over a period of time uh, you know, where we've been talking about Jordan Peterson and uh, uh, although you didn't quote him so quite so explicitly here, it is this idea that, as, as Jordan Peterson has said, is, you know, we can revisit the deep structures of myth that are the foundation of our morality that, that recur and occur, recur over thousands of years, whether it be in, in holy books or sagas, uh, across, across many different cultures, and and you see those those myths coming back through through Harry Potter because they they uh, bring out something that's deep and true about what it means to be human, uh, whether you're religious or not. And Jordan Peterson always ducks that issue, but um, uh, whether it's religious or not, it's something deep about what humans are. Whereas uh, the what I think you're getting to um, is that the woke left, of course, is part rejects all of that it's the essence of the blank slate view of humankind that we're uh, perfectible um, that with sufficient education uh, we can be made perfect that we can be made moral and they have their bizarre definition of of morality so uh, I found it a fascinating hypothesis that um, clearly people who've perhaps have read Harry, maybe they read Harry Potter in their childhood and loved it and then got to universities and, and got taught why they needed to feel guilty about that, Renee. Do you think perhaps that's the rejection that's going on here? Or is that or is that itself a Jungian interpretation? Um, I know. I think for what's been going on for a very long time is, uh, so I got actually got a bit of backlash on this essay, not actually from uh, the left, but actually from conservatives who had put Harry Potter in the woke left basket or in the, you know, there's, there seems to be a kind of um, theme within uh, like older conservatives, um, young people are bad and all the things they like are bad and there can't be any deep meaning underneath them. Um, but the kind of left that um, grew up with Harry Potter had been constantly trying to shove Harry Potter within their woke context, can, can, you know, consistently trying to say, actually, no, it does align with our views. Look, she said that Dumbledore's gay. Oh, look, we can cast Hermione as a different race. We can we can do all these things whilst ignoring the deep underlying themes, which are about you know you know the kind of Jordan Peterson thing of you know put your room in order before you go and criticize the world, kind of. Uh, willingly take on your burden. It's it's deep um, concepts of kind of self-improvement that are actually within Harry Potter and actually a lot of concepts of um, anti-government. One of the greatest um, threats to Harry apart from Voldemort is actually the Ministry of Magic, a government force. So if they actually look into the books themselves, they're actually inconsistent with um, 
their worldview. So I think they took this opportunity to attack J.K. Rowling and pull it down and, you know, everyone afterwards was like, oh, we always knew the Harry Potter books were bigoted. Um, they took this on happily because it meant that it didn't have to have that inconsistency anymore, um, which was, I think, deep down psychologically bothering them. And, of course, one of the themes of the, uh, I haven't read the books, I've definitely seen the movies, though, is the um, how dangerous it is when the government takes over a private educational institution <laughs> and replaces replaces it um i i, I have to pick up a, a thing with scott and i don't know whether you meant to say this or not but um i don't think this is about perfectibility um i don't think that cancel culture is about a claim that there are a whole bunch of people who are wrong right now and could be made to be right because the uh, i was just looking i saw on twitter and i'm just looking up the headline now there's this headline that says Ellen DeGeneres, of course, the um, mm. comedian and TV host Ellen DeGeneres, has been accused of fat shaming a boy in the 1970s. <laughs> and this becomes, and this is this is like a, a, a big hit about Ellen DeGeneres. Because um, there's Ellen a DeGeneres. bit of a pile on going on at the moment. It, there is a bit of a pile on going at the moment, but this is a story from the 1970s. This is uh, oh, a 50-year-old story. Also note that the pylon started, though I'm not saying that Ellen DeGeneres is a good pe person, but the pylon started after she was shown in that sports match sat with um, George Bush. Yeah. So, so and, and what, I, what I think about what's going on is not about a trying to make people better because, you know, what Ellen DeGeneres in the 1970s, um, just on fat shaming, you know what I mean? So we're not talking about wild anti-Semitism or something like that, but on fat shaming in the 1970s, that is not helping her become a better person now. That is not teaching her the lessons that she needs to learn to be a per better person today. This is just oh. politics, uh, okay. to, to Renee's point. No, no, fair um, point. Fair point. Uh, no, what the perfectibility that I was referring to was of humanity as a whole. Yeah. But yeah, they will, they will, the woke brigades will march towards the perfectibility of the human race on the skulls of their enemies. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, on the skull, and it's the skulls that really matter. Yeah, yeah, it's they're, almost they're a, not it's actually a planning to reform kind of anybody between yeah. Nietzsche and Jung because this this essay was based on the teachings of Jung. As Nietzsche said, God is dead, and now we have to set up our own moral code as if we could create one from nothing. Whilst Jung said, no, these kind of morals and ideas and stories are deeply ingrained with us, and we can't just create them out of thin air. But as we're as we're now a couple of years into the great wokening, um, awakening uh, or the the woke revolution, I think it's very clear on the stories that aren't on the front page of the papers that aren't don't don't relate to the first billionaire novelist. The stories about small organisations, where um, where a director of a small organisation has been pushed out because the statement they made in defense of Black Lives Matters was, was not definitive enough. The, um, uh, the attempt to have um, diverse voices in a small publisher was not comprehensive enough. The attempt to bring characters into novels uh, uh, that are diverse was not sincere enough. And when you see this never-ending run of the small stories, not the front page stories, but the small stories. It's really clear that what's happening here is just a lot of petty 
politics within small subnational communities using this as the new tool that you can get over your rivals or your opponents in small politics which is not which is not at all to um, deny that there isn't a significant ideological revolution going on, but it's to, to argue that those ideological revolutions get used for petty nonsense politics. And that's where so many of the, um, the victims of cancer culture come from. I think there's a, a psychological issue underpinning it as well, um, which I kind of discussed in the essay, which is they, they, these people need to realise that their attacking of people like J.K. Rowling or even past historical figures or even, you know, smaller figures within their community has much less to do with the faults of those people themselves and much more to do about the faults within their own hearts is that society has become to this point where there's a lot of, you know, you're amazing, self-love, all this, you know, you're great the way you are, um, rather than this kind of self-reflection. So that criticism that generally... Um, you know, people like Dostoevsky or Jung would say have to go inwards to, you know, look at the darkest parts of yourself is being pushed outwards to everyone else. Everyone else is the problem, not me. You are the problem. You're the racist. You're the bigoted one. When I think deep down a lot of these people uh, are very damaged inside and actually have some of those kind of bigoted thoughts themselves, so they're projecting them onto others. Couldn't agree more. Uh, if you'd like to read Renee's essay in Aereo magazine, you can go directly there or you can connect via the show notes uh, on your podcast or YouTube platform. Uh, if you go to ipa.org.au, you can see what else we've written about Jordan Peterson and other writings of Renee and indeed me, Scott Hargroves and Chris Berg. Uh, and you can see about how to join or donate while you're there because remember, it's the IPA bringing you this podcast. We've been talking about books and, and myths. Um, Chris, you've been watching uh, The Umbrella Academy, one of the latest Netflix series. Season I have. Two. So, so The Umbrella Academy is actually, um, it's, it's great fun. Um, and I know you've been watching it as well, Scott, so I'm not going to spoil the last episode for you. But it is a great fun show. What it is is a, um, uh, a group of young people uh, are brought together um, a group of young people from around the world are brought together to the Umbrella Academy because they have a bunch of special powers, um, very diverse and inconsistent or coherent bunch of special powers. Um, they're brought together by um, uh, a person who plays their uh, a sort of father figure for them to uh, do missions and stuff like that. Now, um, fast forward into the future after they've been raised in this way and it's about um, how their diverse lives, they're all brought back to save the world from an apocalypse. Pretty basic stuff. Season two, they have to save the world from a different apocalypse. It's, uh, it's in its second season now. Um, it, this is a, I'm, I'm not a big superhero show person or superhero movie person, What I or even comic book movie person. But what I do like about this show is that it acts like a comic book. It has the visual style of a comic book. It has the random arbitrariness of a comic book. It has the um, wild creativity of a comic book that you don't get from the sort of Marvel style superhero um, uh, series that we've been treated to over the last decade and a half. Um, it, it, it feels like a different piece of um entertainment and and it's all the better for it it's not a perfect show 
but it is just a lot of fun. The second season is actually probably better than the first. So if you tried the first and weren't that into it, you should um, stick around because it's set around the, um, it's set in Dallas around in 1963 around John F. Kennedy's assassination. And it's just um, really interesting and fun um, for that reason. Scott, you, but you've been watching it as well. Yeah, Do yeah. You, will you praise it in the, the wholehearted I mean, way? I mean, uh, there are part, parts of it that I really like and the production values are amazing. Um, and there's something, I won't be able to land this, but there's something that's preying on me actually because I did grow up with comic books and I, I uh, DC more than, than Marvel. And um, there's sort of a, a slew of shows out there or, or the, from the new era of graphic novels and I'm thinking of uh, the Umbrella Academy, uh, The Boys, uh, which is on Amazon Prime. I watched season one of that. Uh, and then The Watchmen, which I think just did... Um, uh, pretty well in uh, in the Emmy TV show relatively recently after having been a movie yeah yeah having been a movie which which sort of bombed but was was interesting as well there's 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 it's a generational thing that I just don't quite get though um, in the way that I just don't connect to the characters and the way the the groups there's always these groups and they sort of spread the the love around the different characters but it's not like the Justice League of America they're not heroes. That's, I guess that's the thing. It comes back to Jungian myths again. There's something deep within me that objects to the fact that none of them are, are heroes. And in fact, one of the characters in the Umbrella Academy, uh, Diego, gets criticised by the other characters for his sort of hero complex, that he thinks he's going to put things to right. And, and it's not... Um, I guess I've got to watch the final episode to find out whether he does put things to right. But this, and 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 the and the and of course uh, in um, the boys, the what the 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 world thinks this group of people are superheroes, but in fact they're just evil evil people in the service of an evil evil corporation. And Watchmen was a bit like that too. I don't know. There's something topsy turvy about the morality of all this. That one day I'll get to the bottom of. It. So, well, I so think, um, uh, what, think, we've got to have we've got to have sorry, I'll jump in. We've got to have Sinclair Davidson back on the podcast because he will explain this in excruciating detail for us. Okay. But in the 1980s, there was this turn, which I think the Watchman was really key for. This turn away from the superhero as also morally upright, um, which wasn't, of course, which is a bit of a parody of the previous generations of superheroes. But um, the idea that superheroes would also be normal people with normal flaws. Some of them would be good and some of them would be bad. Um, we, we're never going to get away from that. Um, that. That is locked in. You are never going to get 1940s era Superman. Um, and Scott, to be honest, I know you're not that old to have uh, <laughs> read, read Captain America in World War II. But sorry, Rina, I interrupted you. <laughs> um, I think it might be reflective of the times that are right now. So there's this very old concept um, that's gone out throughout history, that in an unjust world, it takes a monster to protect the innocent. And I think we're at this kind of chaotic point of history where these kind of anti-heroes feel more relevant. These themes are explored more um, in depth in films like, uh, um, you know, The Professional, the French film, um, where a young girl is protected by a hitman um, who ends up, you know, mm. saving her life and... and um, being a very paternal figure to her. But this which, is an ongoing kind should, of arc. 
yeah. which you should you which you should be very careful watching again because that is a dark dark movie <laughs> and not very good so you know it is a dark film but it's 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 another film i personally like the film um but it it carries on this concept which is an archetype which has existed for a while when we come we feel like in this point of complete chaos and, and an unjust world we actually look to yeah the monsters of society to protect um the innocent you can even apply this kind of concept to why some people feel thought we needed trump we needed someone vicious um because the world had reached this point of such um chaos and corruption yeah, that, that's the essence of the flight 93 argument um renee are there any archetypes in lake mungo the 2008 australian film um lake mungo is actually um a, a hidden Australian gem. So this film was made by Joel Anderson and it was actually the only film he ever made. And if you try and find this guy, it's actually impossible. So he, he made this film and kind of disappeared. Um, and it's made in a, in a mockumentary style um, of starting with the death of a young girl um, and it follows the family after that. And the real great thing about this film is it kind of, if you watch the first part of it, people kind of put it in the, you know, found footage, um, basic ghost story category. Um, but you need to keep watching um, because it kind of breaks all the conventions of what we think modern horror should be. And has actually been cited by a lot of critics as possibly the scariest film of all time. Australia actually has a pretty good record of creating some really brilliant independent horror films um, such as The Babadook. Um, and I think films like this actually um, paved the way. And I feel like it almost feels more real and more scary to Australians because the authenticity to an Australian family and Australian community is so, so accurate. It feels so real that you could really almost imagine this happening to yourself or to someone you know. And, so, yeah, and, I highly, highly recommend well, it. Well, there you go. So that's sort of like the ur text for Australian horror films perhaps. That's, that's yes, and um, I, I don't know if I should say this, but um, someone has actually uh, leaked a full version onto YouTube right now, which has not been taken down for months, I think because it's such an obscure film and the rights aren't claimed that much, but you can actually find a full version of this film on YouTube to watch right now. And it's about an hour and a half. Um, and yeah, it's, it's absolutely stunning. The cinematography is great. It's really earthy and just very, very Australian, but really deeply terrifying, I think. Strong recommendation there from Renee. And we won't be linking to that YouTube link in show notes because we believe in private property here at the IPA, including intellectual <laughs> property up to a point. Um, uh, up to a point. Up uh, to a point. Up to a point. Um, speaking of horror, um, a terrific Gothic horror, amazing film, uh, which some listeners will know, called The Lighthouse, uh, which came out last year. Uh, I just uh, It was released in cinemas, but I only just caught it on the big uh, my home big screen um the lighthouse is is a gothic horror film it's shot in in black and white it was actually shot on 35 millimeter the texture is amazing to see something that was actually shot on film you realize how different it does look it's set funnily enough in a lighthouse it's called the lighthouse and it's really a two-hander with uh, robert pattinson and willem dafoe and it's, uh, I think one of the reviewers said it'd be like if Orson Welles had have shot Moby Dick. Um, it's all close-ups. The, lang the language is this sort of um, 
uh, Moby Dick style, you know, harky lad and, you know, sort of um, Willem Dafoe is, sounds, you know, a little, little bit like the guy in Treasure Island. Um, uh, uh, but it all sort of works because it's consistent. Um, so it's sort of overacted but makes sense in the context of these two uh, people s uh, stranded. Uh, the boat only comes about every eight weeks. Uh, Willem Dafoe's the lighthouse keeper and Robert Pattinson comes in his, as his assistant and is then given all the bad jobs by, by his boss. And it's clear pretty soon that one of them is going mad uh, but you're never quite sure which one and we start to have um, a dream sequences and jump scares and all sorts of things going bump in the night um, and over time and there's even a bit of the rhyme of the ancient mariner in there one of the uh, the propulsive plot points is um, whatever you do don't kill a seabird because that because that's bad luck well you know you can guess what happens after that um, a very hard movie to, to, to describe, um, but I was absolutely riveted. Um, another review I saw said it was re released at Cannes and somebody said instant classic, and I actually think it is. I think this will be a movie that people will be watching for a long, long time. Uh, it was made by the same people who made The Witch. I don't know, Renee, if you've seen that one. I haven't. Seen, uh, seen The Witch, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah the, Witch is, the Witch is brilliant. One of the best um, horror films of the past decade. And this has been on my watch list for a very long time um, because that the that film, The Witch, is so beautifully atmospheric, so dedicated to being set in that particular time period um, in this uh, kind of new colony of people in New England um, and sets up tensions so, so brilliantly. But um, I'm really really um, pleased in The Lighthouse that um, Robert Patterson got a chance to stretch his acting muscles. You know, he kind of unfortunately falls into that category before of, you know, you're in Twilight, you're not a serious actor. Um, but I always thought that he had the capability and it's really, really good to see him showing off his breadth and his ability as an actor. Well, he's going to be Batman, right? So uh, this is clearly a big part of that. Yeah, I, I actually didn't take much convincing there, Renee. I saw him in... Um... Uh, a movie uh, where he played a journalist talking to James Dean, uh, based on a little, just a biopic, uh, not a huge movie, um, but very nicely done. He, the guy can act. Um, he's that, actually a very good musician too. If you look up his music, he's got kind of a bluesy tone to his voice, which is quite nice. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. So and you I'm sure he'll spend the rest of his career being embarrassed about having been in the Twilight films, but what can you do? I'm sure he has a very nice house as a result, and now he can go off and make movies like The Lighthouse. Which oh, I'll, I'll quote um, uh, the guy from uh, Raymond from Everyone Lo Loves Raymond when his wife used to complain about him making jokes. Um, well, why don't you go cry in a big pile of money? So I think Robert Patterson can go cry in a big <laughs> pile of money about that. That's right. Ray Romano. Oh, what a genius. No, no, great. Uh, so some, some great films there. We promise to have some books next week, don't we, uh, Chris, just to prove that we... Well, yeah, yeah. We've actually done pretty well on books. Recently. We, we have been. We've I'm been close. on a roll. So, uh, But lots of screen action for listeners there. Some great recommendations. You have been listening to Looking Forward, a product of the Institute of Public Affairs. I'd like to thank my co-host, Dr. Chris Berg. Thank you, Scott. Uh, it's Renee Gorman, it's been great to have you on Looking Forward once again. 
Thank you for having me on. It's been great. Yeah, and we'll get you back soon. And uh, don't forget, you can also catch uh, Renee on Viral Banter uh, from, and other great productions of the IPA from time to time. Uh, I've been Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review. I'd also like to thank uh, Josh in the studio for putting all this together and getting it out on our wonderful social media platforms. And we'll be back with more Looking Forward next week. <laughs>